Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. I'm Maya Hibbett, an editor with The Intercept. It's been a year and a half since the World Health Organization labeled COVID-19 a pandemic. All right, we have breaking news now. Let's get to it. It has to do with COVID-19. And the World Health Organization has just declared uh, a global cor- uh, coronavirus. It is a pandemic at this point. And we're deeply concerned, both by the alarming levels of spread and severity, and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. But when the novel coronavirus started spreading across the world, most people were more concerned with whether they were going to catch it than where it came from. But there was one unhinged executive who quickly found a culprit. But you don't hear them talking about COVID. COVID. To be specific, COVID-19. That name gets further and further away from China, as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. Like so many of his comments, Trump's claims were not only racist, xenophobic, and stupid, but they were also an unfortunate flattening force. The former president's supporters and subscribers in the government and media spread this rhetoric, and the notion that the pandemic-causing disease was cooked up in a Chinese lab spread on the right almost as quickly as the virus itself did. China, the same country that controls 96% of antibiotics we use in this nation, the same country that is warning to cut off drug exports to the U.S. to kill Americans, is now trying to hide the reality of where coronavirus came from. And on the left, the notion's dismissal as a conspiracy theory happened just as quickly, with just as little scrutiny from the majority of people who peddled it. Well, I'm a scientist, and what I do is I look at the evidence around a hypothesis. There is a huge amount of evidence that these viruses repeatedly emerge into people from wild animals in rural areas through things like hunting and eating wildlife. There is zero evidence that this virus came out of a lab in China. The partisan divide had done it again. There was almost no room for serious inquiry or debate. But what Trump didn't realize or maybe just didn't care about, was that if the coronavirus did emerge from a lab in Wuhan, China, there were members of his government in Washington, D.C., who could arguably be complicit. 
The National Institutes of Health had provided funding to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the nearby Wuhan University Center for Animal Experiment, two institutions that wound up uncomfortably close to the presumed genesis of the pandemic. The money had often come through the EcoHealth Alliance, a New York-based nonprofit that administers federal grants for a variety of scientific projects. But what's striking is the scientific community's swift and complete dismissal in the mainstream of the possibility that the virus could have originated from a lab. In science, you're not really supposed to eliminate a possibility until you've proven that it doesn't work. But so many of the world's top virologists seem not at all interested in asking the question. Recent reporting has revealed that not only was the type of work happening that could, hypothetically, have taught a bat coronavirus to infect people, but there were some pretty specific plans that laid out just the type of experiment that could have done it. In the past month, The Intercept has gotten a hold of some of those plans, and we don't know how much more there might be. Mara Vistendahl, an investigative reporter with The Intercept, spent eight years as a science reporter in China, three of those as the China Bureau Chief for Science. One of the things I learned during that time is that um, there's been this expectation, this expectation and fear um, for many years that a pandemic could arise in Asia. And Sharon Lerner, also an investigative reporter with The Intercept, agrees. Yeah, and there was this early presumption, right? Because we'd seen with SARS that we'd seen that outbreak of disease in, in, in 2003 traced directly to a natural spillover from a bat. Natural spillover from a bat. That's what we knew, or thought we knew, about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's messier than that. Much messier. Well, we have these two opposing theories, the natural spillover theory and the lab leak theory, um, which, you know, it's a shorthand. But basically, you know, there's what, what they're both trying to answer is how did this virus get from bats to people? There's an agreement there. I recently sat down with Mara and Sharon to discuss their latest reporting on documents they've obtained, raising more questions about the origins of the coronavirus than we previously thought. So, you know, I think early on, there was not much surprise that a virus like this could have come out of China because there had been this expectation for so many years that something like this this could happen. And previous outbreaks have had, largely had a natural origin. Um, That was the case with the first SARS virus in the early 2000s. So, you know, there was, I think, a presumption among many scientists, that that could be the case here. As time went on, it became clear that this is not a typical outbreak of infectious diseases. You know, we've never had a, we haven't had a pandemic on this scale. There was also, I think, pretty early on a recognition that, as John Stewart has famously called attention to, that there was a lab in Wuhan, the very city that was the place where the pandemic began, that was looking into the very viruses that were similar to the one that had caused the pandemic. And just that geographic 
coincidence or, or not coincidence, I think alone had some people thinking from the very beginning, people who were aware that labs like this sometimes have a history of having incidents that can cause disease, that that could be a question. Was there a role for the Wuhan Institute of Virology in this pandemic? And I think that also was a question that arose early. Right. And that while there was this expectation or fear um, for many years that you could have an outbreak of natural origin in China, um, the focus was really on Southern China. So one of the closest known ancestors of um, SARS-CoV-2, the the virus that caused the pandemic, was found in southwestern China in Yunnan province. Scientists also recently identified other close ancestors in um, Southeast Asia. And Wuhan is in central China. There is a wildlife trade there, but it's not the region where people were really looking at closely as a, you know, hotspot for the emergence of of new infectious um, diseases of this sort. And so what is the idea behind the so-called lab leak theory centered on that lab in Wuhan? Well, with, with the natural spillover folks, the idea is that it did <laughs> spill over naturally from that there was no intervention, basically, that it went from from a bat and from maybe a bat biting a human into becoming a, a human pathogen. And on the other side, you have this idea that 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 the virus entered humans through some of the work that was going on in the lab. And it isn't necessarily that it was an accident, which you often hear a lab accident, though it, it certainly could be that, you know, that that someone working in the lab didn't follow proper procedures, or there was some sort of an accident, a spill or something like that. There's also been lots of attention to the fact that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was involved in the collection of bad viruses, sampling thousands of viruses going to these remote locations and actually bringing them back with them to Wuhan, to the lab. And the process of collecting them and storing them and gathering them in itself is a risky thing. And then there's kind of the third part of this, which is so-called gain-of-function research of concern, which is something that we have written about. And this is research that was going on in the Wuhan Institute of Virology that takes viruses and does experiments with them in which they alter how they uh, are and behave. Let's let's back up a little bit because you mentioned gain-of-function research of concern, and gain-of-function is this very broad term that has been misused in many cases. So let's define what gain-of-function research is and what makes it so-called of concern uh, to the U.S. government? Yeah. So, I mean, gain of function, I think the term basically means that you're changing how a virus functions. And the gain is that you make it more perhaps transmissible or virulent or pathogenic, right? And so these are experiments where you change a virus and perhaps it ends up having more of one of these functions. And that's gain of function. When you have gain of function research of concern, this is a particular subset of gain of function research. And the concern is that it involves a potential pandemic pathogen or something that's likely 
to become a potential pandemic pathogen. So something that could start a pandemic, you know, and clearly we know that SARS-CoV-2 is is not just a potential pandemic pathogen, but a pandemic pathogen. So when when you start dealing with viruses that that could impact humans the way we have seen SARS-CoV-2 impact humans, then that's a concern. And it's important to note that there was a huge controversy surrounding this research before the start of the pandemic. That controversy was mainly within the scientific community. Uh, you know, it wasn't an issue that I think most Americans or, or most people in the world had thought about in any way. But, the, you know, there was an enormous debate around the topic. And there were U.S. government committees that were convened to consider, you know, what the appropriate protocols surrounding this research should be. Um, you know, it went all the way back to 2011 when there were these studies published involving research on flu viruses to make them, you know, potentially more transmissible to humans. And essentially, the scientific community divided into two camps. There were, and there still are today, virologists who maintain that it's important to do these experiments because by understanding how viruses can be more easily transmitted, we can prevent a pandemic. You know, we can prevent a major outbreak. Then there's another camp, which tends to be more filled with biosafety experts, you know, with people or say who who are kind of tasked with uh, monitoring science who say, hold on, these experiments could also start a pandemic. And so you have these two very different worldviews that were there before the pandemic. And I think this is one of the things that many sort of not understood in the context of the debate surrounding the origins of the pandemic, that this was a very political issue before 2020 and that you know, many scientists had a stake in the outcome of the origins of the pandemic. For this 2011 study that Mara mentioned, these experiments had to do with passaging avian flu within ferrets. So that was having mammals be able to transmit a bird flu just through the air. It was the kind of enhanced transmissibility that those experiments demonstrated that raised alarms for all these people in the scientific community and actually led to a temporary pause on funding gain-of-function research, especially when it involves these potential pandemic pathogens. So since that pause, let's discuss how the government regulates this research and how it decides whether or not something is worth funding. So it's interesting because the pause was lifted in 2017. And the grant that Mara and I got through the FOIA was ongoing during that period. It started in 2014, went through 2019. And in the documents we got, there is this description of a particular experiment. Many of the experts we spoke with said that they believe this experiment qualified as gain-of-function research of concern. And in particular, I should say it met the National Institutes of Health definition of gain-of-function research of concern. And basically in this experiment, what they did is that they took bat coronaviruses and they put together different parts of other viruses to make chimeric viruses, these sort of hybrids. 
And they injected those viruses into mouse cells that had been genetically engineered to respond like human cells. And when they did that, they saw that the viruses reproduced far more quickly within the humanized mice. The experts we spoke with said that even when you kind of take away the question of whether it was gain-of-function research of concern, which is a a much contested term, overwhelmingly they said whether or not it was gain-of-function research, it was dangerous. So when the pause was lifted in 2017, what they did was they said that they were going to institute these guidelines that would govern and oversee any kind of gain-of-function research. And yet when we reached out to NIH about this experiment, it turned out that they said that they just decided that it did not need to be regulated under those guidelines. I was pretty amazed by that because what that means is that we have these policymakers who spent years putting together these guidelines that are designed to very carefully protect us from dangerous research of this kind. And what the NIH was saying essentially is like, well, we decided we didn't have, those guidelines didn't apply here. What we're really not clear about is why. One of the things we learned though is that these guidelines, again, that took years to come up with, only three experiments actually wound up being considered under them and regulated under them. So it's a pretty big loophole, I would say, which is, it's not even really a loophole, but what it's, you know, what it is, is they've said that we have all these great minds that came up with these ways to safeguard against disaster. And basically what happened, it looks like in this case, is that they drove right around it and they just bypassed the guidelines altogether. So Moving forward, the question is, how are we going to oversee this research if it's going to continue at all? Before we obtained these documents from NIH through a FOIA lawsuit, there was this prominent critique among you know people who advocated for, for better biosafety that the very comprehensive protocol that had been developed to try to ensure that research was safe was just not being applied. You know, that in some cases you had the fox guarding the hen house and that, you know, just you had these robust guidelines that that just weren't being implemented. And the grant documents that after we did obtain them, it just sort of underscores that point. Some scientists in the virology community and people who are proponents of -of gain-of-function research have argued that the inquiry into whether the pandemic could have originated in a lab is just totally off base because the people who are inquiring don't have the base of knowledge to understand what they're talking about, to kind of like interpret and analyze the evidence effectively. So I think we should define a few things before we proceed. Sharon, you mentioned the humanized mice used in the experiment. What that term means is that there are mice that have been genetically engineered to express an enzyme in their lungs um, called human ACE2. And that enzyme is what a lot of respiratory coronaviruses, including SARS-CoV-2, use in order to bind to human lung cells. The SARS-CoV-2 virus also has something called a furin cleavage site, which is on the spike protein and essentially helps the virus break into the cell. 
We already discussed the types of experiments outlined in the NIH proposal you obtained through the FOIA lawsuit. But then we also reported on another grant proposal to the defense agency known as DARPA, which DARPA rejected. Could you talk a little about what the project proposed to do? So that proposal, as you mentioned, was not funded. And it was a proposal that was first released by the online group Drastic, which is this kind of group of some anonymous, some not researchers who have been looking into the origins of the virus. So they released this proposal, which was from the EcoHealth Alliance with many kind of sub-awardees to DARPA. And there are a number of interesting things in this proposal, which basically laid out a plan to vaccinate bats. But as part of it, there are a number of different sections and different plans they had that were outlined in this proposal. And one of the things described inserting this furin cleavage site we've been talking about into chimeric viruses. This really caught a lot of people's attention because this furin cleavage site has for a long time now been a focal point in this debate over the origins of the pandemic. And that's because it's a very rare thing in this type of bat coronavirus. And so people were speculating, where did this come from? You know, how how did this furin cleavage site get into this virus? So there was the question of like, well, Could it perhaps have been inserted there? Could it have been engineered? And many on the um, natural spillover side of things dismiss this idea as, well, crazy, um, and also in sort of a a conspiracy theory. And And the gist was, why would anyone ever do that? And what was notable, one of the notable things about this proposal was that it outlined this exact thing, the insertion of the furin cleavage site into a bat coronavirus. And so, you know, there are a lot of questions about it. We still don't know what, if any, of the work that was outlined, the proposal was done, because again, it wasn't funded. Many people told us that when you, when researchers put together this kind of proposal, often some of the work that they're describing has already been done. And of course, they don't just have one funding source. So even though DARPA didn't fund them, it doesn't mean that they didn't have money from elsewhere to to do this work. You know, here is this question, could, could someone have done it? Well, certainly someone considered doing it. And the Folks who were on this grant, among them Peter Daszak, who who is the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, and another researcher named Limfa Wong, who is a sub-awardee on the proposal, it really struck a lot of the people who we spoke to, there's silence on this issue. So even though it's been a really focal point in the debate, and many people on the spillover side were saying this would never happen. The two of these guys knew that there was a proposal that described this very experiment and didn't mention it. Again, the DARPA proposal was not funded, but it kind of raised really important questions about not only what do we not know, but what do some people know and refuse to share? And I think in some ways, 
sort of deepened the divide among some of the, the scientific community about this and deepened some of the mistrust because people said to me, okay, well, how is it that they could have been embarking or, or at least thinking about embarking on this research and not disclosed it, you know, when it's so, so central to the questions that we're all trying to answer right now. And just to give you a sense of the politics around the Furing Cleavage site, earlier this year, the Nobel laureate for the eminent virologist David Baltimore told the science writer Nicholas Wade that when he saw the Furin cleavage site and um, learned about it, he he told his wife that it was the smoking gun for the origin of the pan- pandemic, and and that caused a huge controversy within the scientific community to the point where Dr. Baltimore eventually said that he overstated the importance of the Furin cleavage site and, and, you know, somewhat walked back his quote. And so, you know, it was at the point where it was so controversial for someone to, to say something like that. And yet there was this plan for this experiment that several people knew about and that they did not mention at that time. So, Peter Daszak, uh, the president of the EcoHealth Alliance, and his silence on the issue. For those who are not aware of his position and the amount of influence he's had over inquiries into the origins of the pandemic, what what's his role and kind of what has he done in the past year and a half? So very early in the pandemic, you know, in January and February of 2020, Peter Daszak became a leading voice in the media and elsewhere on the coronavirus. He had, of course, a big conflict of interest for people who thought that there was a possible lab origin because he had, you know, led the team that oversaw work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But, you know, he organized a group of scientists to publish a letter in The Lancet, kind of decrying the idea of a lab origin as a conspiracy theory. And he, you know, he went on 60 Minutes um, in the spring of 2020 to talk about how he was being attacked, you know, how his research was actually critical to preventing outbreaks and to preventing the pandemic. And he was able to very definitely get himself portrayed as being unfairly attacked by the Trump administration, you know, which there was an element of truth to it because Trump and Pompeo and several others, of course, went completely overboard in their critiques of the Wuhan Institute of Virology and of people associated with it. So he very quickly won sympathy from the left and from the scientific community and managed to emerge as a sort of supposed voice of reason in the debate. And not only that, so he's the voice of reason, but he's also portraying everyone else who disagrees with him as completely nuts. They're coming at this with a belief system that there is a cabal of, of mysterious international folks who are trying to kill people, design a vaccine and make money, or it's a nefarious um, government who's uh, 
um, who's working to release a virus for their own political purposes, to subjugate the West, etc. So they're coming up with a belief system to start off with. So logic drops out of the window at that level. But I mean, partly, to be fair, this quote is from 2020. And I think partly what it shows is how much has changed since then. And because people, it was pretty easy in a sentence or two to dismiss anyone who thought, you know, differently from him as a conspiracy theorist back then. And it's not so easy now. Much harder. You know, Dashik was aided in his effort to become the voice of reason in the pandemic by the politics at the time, you know, you had Trump and Pompeo um, accusing China of making a bioweapon, which is something that very few scientists believe is a possible origin of the pandemic. And so you had genuine conspiracy theories out there in the ecosystem that unfortunately got conflated with a possible lab accident or with, you know, sort of research that we know commonly happens at labs and that was happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. All of that got mixed together and Trump was just spouting so many crazy ideas at that point that I think there was this reflex among the left and among people who who felt like they are, you know, rational believers in science to immediately kind of veer in the other direction. I do think, you know, the kind of crazy and partisan narrative, we didn't leave it in 2020 entirely. Like there's that infamous moment this summer when Rand Paul accused Anthony Fauci of lying about whether or not the U.S. had funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. What was, let me finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans. You're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah, that is correct. And, And Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. You know, this is still largely an issue of the right in in many circles. And I wanted to bring that up because we haven't really addressed the question of Fauci and the NIH and the NIAID, uh, National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which Fauci directs and heads. And in that moment when when Rand Paul accused Fauci of lying, was, was Fauci lying? And what do the NIH documents that you two obtained, how do they inform that conversation? I don't know he has a leg to stand on, on, you know, the question of it was not gain of function research. But I think there are 
real questions about what he knew as an individual, as opposed to what his staff knew. I, I think that, but that again speaks to me, to this real lack of transparency. It's been very hard to figure out who knew what exactly, who was doing the reviewing, who signed off on these things, who again decided that it didn't have to go through and meet the guidelines. We don't know uh, if Fauci was involved with that. We, we just don't know. As we've been talking about some of these proposals, it's important to note that the actual genetic manipulation of the viruses, the experiment to insert the furin cleavage site into the spike protein, was supposed to occur first at the University of North Carolina, not in Wuhan. This doesn't mean that if it was done, that they couldn't essentially print out the genome sequence or send the instructions to do that to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But we have to remember that these experiments weren't just happening in Wuhan. There were also prominent U.S.-based virologists potentially working on this project. Yeah, in 2020, the debate around the origin of the pandemic was often, you know, did work in a Chinese lab lead to the pandemic? Or was it a natural origin? And you know, the Trump administration did everything they could to blame China for the outbreak. There was, of course, a huge uptake in hate crimes against Asian Americans. And it's been a very unfortunate outgrowth of this entire controversy. And what we see is, in fact, a much more complicated picture is that if there is a connection to a lab, it would be a project that was potentially funded by the United States, um, by the U.S. government, that involves U.S. researchers working in collaboration with Chinese researchers and researchers from elsewhere. And so, you know, it's not a such a clear-cut issue of blame. And just to further complicate things even a little more, in the NIH grant documents that you obtained via FOIA, I understand that there was a date on one of the annual progress reports um, that was inconsistent with what it was supposed to be. So could you tell us a little bit about, first of all, what an annual progress report is and what it's supposed to tell us, and then what the potential significance of the changed date is? I mean, this would be unusual in with any project, but the fact that it happened with this grant and that there was and is this controversy um, surrounding EcoHealth Alliance at the time that the progress report was submitted means that it is worth understanding what happened in that case. And we uh, we went to NIH and EcoHealth Alliance um, several times with questions about this progress report. They did not get back to us. So we then went to scientists who have knowledge of the NIH grant process who, you know, confirmed to us that this is unusual. So the context is that this is just the latest in a string of examples of missing or incomplete or deleted data from the early days of the pandemic. You know, there have been genetic sequences taken from people in Wuhan in 2019 that were found to be mysteriously deleted. 
and um, then later recovered. The WHO had to recently revise data on early patients from Wuhan following a report in the Washington Post that pointed out discrepancies. So this is not something that they did on their own. They did it only following critical journalism. And that sort of pattern has played out again and again. And so it does raise questions about what happened with this report. Is there a benign explanation or what's going on? From my end, the more I think about this, the more I write about it, the more questions I have. I don't know how many questions we're answering here, but we're sort of in the business of collecting questions right now. And there are so many of them. And there are so many good minds thinking about this. Um, And a lot of people have said, you know, there's no way to answer this question of how the pandemic began. And that may be true, but we're definitely not done amassing and asking questions. And I think the politics have made it really uncomfortable for many journalists to try to get to the bottom of it. I'm really glad to be part of a group that's asking these questions. You know, whether or not we're going to get them answered in a definitive way, they should be asked in, in the best way possible. You know, we've spent the past few months talking to a wide variety of sources And there are scientists who tilt toward a natural origin, who think that the pandemic likely grew out of close contact between people and animals in the wild or at a market, who nonetheless think that these experiments raise very important questions about biosafety and that EcoHealth Alliance's work deserves scrutiny whether or not it led to the pandemic. And I think that's an important point. And so the question for me is not just did EcoHealth Alliance cause a pandemic, but it's a larger question of how can we ensure that laboratories are safe going forward? Um, We know that there have been lab accidents. We know that this sort of research has been highly contentious. You know, how can we um, address that issue going forward and prevent a possible pandemic arising from that research in the future, regardless of the origin of the current pandemic. You know, Maya, you and I have talked to people, scientists who work very closely on these issues, whose opinions have shifted as the result of seeing these documents. It's not just the political landscape that's shifting. I think that some scientific opinion is shifting, too, because they're learning about details about what has occurred that they did not know or understand before. Yeah, I I agree that that's significant. Um, And I also think it's worth noting that for all the scientists who believe that a lab origin is technically possible, even if it's not the most plausible explanation in in their view. Um, for the most part, people do at least concede that it's it's a possible explanation. And it's doubly concerning when a scientist um, who's supposed to kind of make a living asking questions and never be satisfied until they've come up with a concrete answer um, decides to just rule out 
one set of possibilities entirely and, you know, shuts themselves off to uh, an entire line of inquiry just because it's either politically inconvenient or professionally inconvenient, perhaps. Yeah. And when I keep coming back to and when the consequences of like that sort of irresponsible shift, I mean, we're talking about a pandemic that's caused four and a half million deaths. (laughs) You know, you want to be really sure when when you roll something out, you know, the stakes are high. At this point, you know, President Biden convened an the intelligence community to investigate the origin of the pandemic for three months. Um, in August, they came back with the inconclusive results and were split on what could have happened and, you know, did not have high confidence in, in, in any possible origin. So it's not something the intelligence community has been able to solve. It's the WHO committee, the Lancet committee have had clear problems and, and, there's a, a recognition even at the WHO that that tactic is not working. But there are a lot of people who said, well, you know, China's not going to let in another committee to investigate in any serious way. Um, we may never know the origin of the pandemic. So, you know, what's the point? Like, what can we do? And what these documents show is that we can uncover useful information by looking at what U.S. federal agencies have funded. Um, there's a lot of information available in the United States using just the Freedom of Information Act. Or if Congress were to subpoena documents, they would be able to obtain a lot more. And that information is freely available and deserves to be examined. In the end, it may point toward a natural origin. Who knows what, as more information comes out. But the documents that we've already obtained have pushed the discussion already much further than it was. Sharon, Mara, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Lead producer is Jose Olivares. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. And Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next time, I'm Maya Hibbett. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.